Hey there, welcome to the weekend show where we are going through the Bible this year and we are talking about questions that pop up naturally as we read through the Bible. And we also aim to discuss some of your questions as well. So as you're reading through the Bible, if you have any questions, please send them in to us, write them down in the comment section below. But for now, in case this is your first time here, my name's Corey and I'm joined by my husband. Hey. Hey, how you doing? Good. And your name is Malachi. <laughs> my name is Malachi. Of course. Yeah. Of course. I'm just saying, if, if this is someone's first time here. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's good. It's good to warm people up to like you know, the faces, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so today we're doing our, our our Bible reading, which was 1 Samuel 13 to 2 Samuel 7. So we're covering quite a bit there. Yeah. So that yeah. was all of our assigned reading for this week. That's this right. Past. That's right. Yes. So yeah, we're going to dive into that and that should be exciting. We are. So some of the questions that we're going to be taking a look at today, our overarching big question is going to be, does the Bible teach that you can lose your salvation? And this was brought up by a viewer who notes how God took his spirit away from King Saul and replaced it with a tormenting spirit. So we're going to be jumping into that. We're also going to be talking about um, David as an exorcist. We're going to be talking about the Witch of Endor conjuring up Samuel's spirit uh, and, and the rejection of Saul. Lots of good stuff on right. plate today. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I have an opening question for you. Sure. It's a viewer question. And it's from Peter. And he asks, why does God reject Saul for not killing all the Amalekites? Right. Okay. So this happens not, in... I can chime in just a little bit, yeah, continue. but I will say it's definitely not because of mercy. Saul wasn't showing mercy to the Amalekites. Yes, that, that is true. Because I think sometimes when people have these kind of questions, they're like, oh, but wasn't he just being like a nice guy? Like, that's not the case what's happening here. I know I was just kind of interrupting you for a second, but I didn't want to <laughs> interject that you? one thing. It wasn't about <laughs> mercy here. That is true. Okay, so uh, God, it's it's really interesting because in 1 Samuel 15, God is giving Saul specifically as, as the first king of Israel the job to continue uh, essentially the conquest of Canaan. So um, God wants Saul to go on a mission that was very similar to the mission that the original Israelites had when they were under Joshua's leadership coming into the land of Israel and how they destroyed the city of Jericho and burned it. It was a total destruction of that city. Not all cities were totally destroyed, but Jericho specifically was completely destroyed as a form of judgment. And so God gives Saul a similar command here in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, and Saul goes on the mission, but he doesn't complete the mission. So the, the fighting men take spoils of war. So they take payment for themselves from the, the flocks of the Amalekites and Saul leaves the king alive. He takes the king prisoner. Well, he's not supposed to. He was supposed to put the king to death as a form of judgment. Um, and so when he comes back, the prophet Samuel is told to go and confront Saul, but we also get a really, really interesting report um, in verse 12. So, so Samuel already knows this is a problem and he's been told he has to go meet Saul. And verse 12 says this, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down 
to Gilgal. So not only has he disobeyed the command of God to bring judgment, complete judgment on this group of people, but now he has also set up his own monument. This is an intensely ironic moment because if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 12, and it's not just in Deuteronomy chapter 12, it's actually all over the scripture. The original point of the conquest was to clear the land of idolatry. It was bringing judgment on the people who, uh, by their tremendous amount of evil, had brought even the land into a place of evil because there was um, pagan worship places everywhere, all over the land, um, high places all over the place where awful evil was taking place, human sacrifice, things of that nature. So in Deuteronomy 12, uh, the, the conquest is summarized really nicely. I'll start in verse one. I'm just going to read verses one to three. It says this, these are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors has given you to possess as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. Now, historically, we know that monument stones in the land were set up by kings, kings of cities, and they had the names of the pagan gods that were sponsoring the kings, essentially, on them. So it's a political and a religious monument all in one. And when Israel went into Canaan, their goal was to get rid of all of the evil, all of the idolatry, and specifically here, to wipe out the names of those gods and kings from the land. So God, in 1 Samuel 15, gives Saul a continuation of that mission. Go and do the same to the king of the Amalekites. Completely destroy what they have, put to death the king of the Amalekites and come back. Saul not only does not complete that mission, but when he gets back into the land on Mount Carmel, he sets up one of those stones with his name on it. So it's this complete failure to, to accomplish this mission at all. In fact, he's reversing this mission. He is just replacing the names of the pagan gods and the names of the pagan kings with his own name. So uh, that would be my answer is, you know, why does God reject Saul for not killing all of the Amalekites? It's because it's for this reason. It's because Saul was not completing the the, the judgment that, that was Israel's responsibility to bring in this case. He did not complete the judgment. And not only that, he also adopted the evil of these people who had come under the judgment of God by setting up a monument in his own honor. Right. And what's interesting about that is, too, we recall from Joshua and Judges, or specifically Joshua, that these things that are set for destruction uh, were things that were people were doing abominable evils. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it wasn't just judgment because they, they weren't great people or because they didn't believe in the God of the Bible. It right. wasn't that. It was that they, they had generations and generations of horrendous sin. Right. And we know that because when God was talking to Abraham in Genesis, 
he could have brought Abraham right away right. to the promised land and and driven out the people, but he didn't. He said no. That the like they're not there yet. Right. They're they're not they're not at the place where I would bring judgment on them yet, but they will be. Exactly. So what what you have here happen is that Samuel actually sorry not Samuel Saul excuse me, um, actually ends up adopting the lifestyle, which is the whole point was that that, that their lifestyle was devoted to destruction. Yeah. Because their pagan practices, their religion was pure evil. Yep. So. Uh, he adopts it by setting up a monument stone in his own name, mm -hmm. in his own honor, which you would think today, it's, oh, we got all these statues, it's not a big deal. But what this is saying, and this is why uh, Samuel charges him in first, uh, first Samuel 15, 23, mm -hmm. he goes, arrogance or presumption or pride, either one of those three, is like the sin of uh Rebellion uh, idolatry. is the sin of divination, arrogance is like the evil of, of idolatry. idolatry. That's right. And that word there, arrogance, can also be presumptuousness or pride. It's just that, that thought, thought there of putting yourself above God. Because mm -hmm. he was supposed to listen to God's command and he didn't. And then it's like the sin of idolatry. And so he makes, Samuel makes that connection for him very explicitly. Mm -hmm. And then his rebellion against God is like the sin of divination, which is what they're doing. Because he's taking his own direction. Exactly. Other than God's direction. Just as divination is, is rejecting God's answer That's and trying right. to find a different answer from the spiritual world. Exactly. And then he says not only just like divination, but it's also like iniquity itself, mm -hmm. which is what these pagan people were charged for from God. Yeah. And all throughout, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you know, we see God saying, if you engage in these practices, if you become like the people, you also will have the same end as right. them. You will become devoted to destruction. Mm -hmm. If you t if you if you adopt the lifestyle of the things devoted to destruction, right? So, this is what Saul's doing, and he is rejected because of it, because he has now become like the people that that God judged in the first place. Right. All right, that's good, yeah. and I'm sure that'll factor in later to our big question. So, he here it is. Okay, so here's the next question for you. Okay, it's pertaining to First Samuel 16. Okay, is the Bible teaching? that David was an exorcist? Did he have a deliverance ministry of some kind? So that he could cast out demons by song. Right. So <clears throat> is the Bible teaching that? Because we know it's, a lot of people know, I don't know if you know at home, but it's a rabbinic tradition right. that, that he was, um, he could do this and that his son Solomon did this. So what's mm -hmm. your stance on this? I don't know if you've studied this too much or? So, Look, I, I could be wrong. I'm not all knowing here, but but I do I think that I think it goes outside of the bounds of scripture to say that David was a regular form of an exorcist, as in people from all over Israel came to him for exorcisms. I there's there's no hint in the Bible that that is true. But I know that in 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 Jewish tradition, not only David but also Solomon engaged in this. But that is outside of the scope of the Bible and is a later tradition. Whether or not it's true, I don't think we can say. I, but but what I think the Bible is doing here. It's showing us, and, and, okay, what does it mean that David's playing as the anointed future king of Israel who had the spirit of God on him? And Saul lost it. What does it say that he was able to bring Saul peace from the tormenting spirit that replaced the spirit of God on Saul. And I think what, what it shows to us 
and what it would have shown to David is the serious nature of the spiritual world and the reality of the spiritual world and the call that David had. So, and in, and in many ways, what David could become. Saul was the first king of Israel that was anointed and he had lost that anointing. God had removed his spirit from Saul, the spirit of God that was empowering Saul to be the king of Israel that had been removed. David now has the spirit of God empowering him to be the next king of Israel. And he's brought David in very close relation with Saul so that David can see how extremely awful it would be for David to lose the spirit of God. And it also shows that David, that, that the spirit of God is what brings peace. The spirit of God is what brings order to human evil. So I think that's what here the scripture, right. these are the lessons that we should be drawing out of the scripture rather than saying, oh, because of this, David probably had a deliverance ministry. I think that just goes way beyond the text. It's interesting to think about. I mean, it's possible that the, the text doesn't make that an impossible scenario, but the text doesn't naturally lead us there. When we look at what the text is showing us, it's putting it's it's putting a black and white contrast in front of us. What a king looks like who's lost the spirit of God and what a king looks like who has the spirit of right. God. Chaos and peace, chaos and order. And I, I will say this though, because the the term son of David kind of became a ter uh, a term or a, a phrase that's used to refer to someone who had some sort of uh, healing power in this sense, a delivering power from spirits. Um, and where where did that what th that was in rabbinic tradition? Oh, and I see. Interestingly okay. enough, I, I did some research into this, so I just kind of you know went at Bible Gateway, son of David, see what all the things appears in the synoptic go uh, synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mm -hmm. The son of David usually comes up and it's tied to some sort of healing that happens. Mm -hmm. So he's like son of David, and then he heals somebody, and he also um uh cleans them from an evil spirit or whatnot. So you know, um uh, anyways, but and those verses, if you're interested to look into that, um, when he's casting out demons or he's healing, for healing specifically, Matthew 20, 29 to 34, Luke 18, 38 to 43, and Mark 10, 46 to 52. And when he's casting out demons, specifically Matthew 12, 22 to 23, and 15, uh, 22. So what's interesting here is that the son of David's used there, son of the gospels, in reference to mm -hmm. casting out demons and also healing. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what you see happening here with, with um, Saul. When he's right. playing the music, um, Saul is also f feeling healed while at the same time uh, tempering a spirit at the same time. So it's, it's like this mutual relationship. Now... What's really interesting is that in John, Son of David's never used. But what is used is that everyone refers to, uh, to Jesus as someone who's possessed by a demon. So John never uses the term mm -hmm. Son of David, but everyone accuses him of being possessed only in John. Right. So you have this flip happening, whereas Jesus is casting out demons in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in John, he's being called that he has a demon and he's never called the Son of David mm -hmm. at all. So I think that, and specifically what's interesting about that is that John is making a uh, an ironic contrast because you know, it says in 1 John, I think verse 4, 
uh, he came into the world and all the and even though the world was made through him, no one received him, no one knew it was him. Right. So he's making this contrast here. Like everyone mm-hmm. thinks he has a demon, but he's actually God, right? Right. Um so I, I bring all that up is because I think it's actually in the New Testament in a very subtle way, but it's not making a point about that David had a deliverance ministry or anything like that. Right. Yeah. Right. It's just simply high like very well, subtly making a reference that's it's something that's in the culture. Well, it, this okay. Yes. The Messiah was was to come through David, and everyone knew that, which right, is right. why he's called the son of David, right? Even Matthew's like, he's the son of David, the son of Abraham, right? right. With the genealogies. But in Jewish culture of the New Testament, they knew and held dear because of King David's position in the history of Israel. I mean, he is this archetype. He is this, he is the founder of all every king of Jerusalem and he is the the Messiah is going to come from him it makes sense that they hold dear they had still at that time the tomb of David right, right, was right. known so it makes sense that they knew of this history of David the, the spirit of God on David being so present right. and so there that the tormenting spirit of Saul could not stand in the presence of the spirit of God on David. Right. Like it could not stand. So I, I think that makes a tremendous amount of sense. I don't think you need to have the 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 whole backstory of then, well, then David also exercises demons. Right. I'm not saying it was impossible. And I don't actually know how old that the, the Jewish tradition is. Of course, if it yeah. precedes even the gospels, if it goes back to you know, the the uh, the time of the Septuagint, the time of the Babylonian exile right. or even beyond, that's really interesting because then is Matthew feed is he is he playing on that? Right. But I think that, that 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 connection with the son of David when Christ is exercising demons can simply just be from here oh, in first yes. Samuel. Well, I think, I, I think so too. Sense. Yeah. So it's interesting either yeah. way. Yeah, I to don't look think it. I totally agree with you. I don't think David was an exorcist like per se. Uh, did did he cast out demons? Did he do these things? Perhaps. Maybe. Was he soothing soul? Absolutely, right? He was soothing his spirit. Yeah. Uh, and because of that, you can build up these uh, these possibilities in your mind, but which is dangerous to make them facts. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I think is really, really good about this is that in this instance, it does hearken to the new, the new covenant in the sense that our covenantal sign is the Holy Spirit. And part of this is the casting out of demons. Mm-hmm. And that that comes with having the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that is like, uh, you need the Holy Spirit to be able to do those things. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a relationship there uh, in terms of the new covenant. But again, I don't think it was, David was going around, this is any indication that he was going around just casting out demons at left, right, and center. And like, like, like an exorcism is an actual job specifically to do with Catholicism as opposed to let's say deliverance well, today, ministry right, today. Right, right, right. So um, yeah, I, I would say, no, it's not teaching that he is, but it's implying what the Holy Spirit can do. I, and I think that the symbolism is really interesting because not only like the Spirit of God empowered David to, to cast out of Israel, out of the territory of Israel, the very real physical enemies of Israel. But right. in ancient Judaism, we see in the book of Daniel 
that the physical world wasn't just physical how we would view it today. We tend to look at wars as just physical wars between people groups. But in the ancient world, they they believed and saw attached to enemy militaries uh, very real spiritual forces yes. as well. And we see that, it, like the, the easiest place to see that is in the book of Daniel. It's pretty explicitly mentioned with the, you know, the, 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 uh, prince angel over Israel fighting with the princes of Persia and Greece. Uh, but we also do see that in the book of Kings and Chronicles when, um, when you know, the, the king's afraid and God opens his eyes and he sees the armies of heaven, the heavenly armies that are standing with him as well. So there is a spiritual element to that as well. So the symbolism is not lost and would not have been lost on, right. uh, you know, ancient, the, the ancient Jews that, that David not only the spirit of God on David cast out the tormenting spirit from Saul when he was in David's presence just because it couldn't stand, but also that the Holy Spirit had empowered David to rid um, the the territory of Israel from the enemies of God, which did have a spiritual element to it as well. So I think this tradition makes a lot of sense. Yes, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yes, I agree. But with whether you. he was an exorcist in the way that we have come to understand an exorcist. I That's mean, what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Totally. Okay. I think we can move on to the next question. I think so. Yeah. yeah we, okay. we want to beat that one pretty, pretty hard. I know. It's interesting. Okay. Yeah, it so, um, 1 Samuel 13 and 23. Okay. There is a Bible question here for you, Matlock. Does the prophet Samuel imply that God is reacting to human free will. Right. So First uh, Samuel 13 verses 13 to 14 says this. Okay. Do you want me to read it or you got it? Well, are you going to answer it? Yeah, but I, I, yeah. You can read it too. Sure. Okay. If I'll read it. To, okay. So, I will sit back yeah, because I saw this. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to write down the verses because this, the reason why these verses were selected is very specific. Okay. Okay. Sure. So, and, uh, so this is First Samuel 13 verses 13 to 14. Yes. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. Uh, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. So it sounds very much like because of it. He's saying specifically because of these things that you did, God's mm -hmm. not going to do it. Okay, so now, First Samuel 23, 8 to 14. This is the classic Molinism text. Um, and Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And then God said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When the Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Okay. 
So the question is specifically about God reacting to human free will. Now, there's a couple things right. to explain here, but how does this factor into free will? Because the first one, as we talked about in 1 Samuel 13, God seems to be reacting to Saul's poor behavior. And it's like, okay, you could have been king, but now you're not going to be king. Right. So this whole issue is, does God just predetermine everything? Right. Or does humanity have a free will that interacts? Right, of in course. This scenario? I, is everything destined? Right. Or can human are human choices real? Right. And the happy medium in that part is compatibilism, where it's not quite... You know, they have hyper-Calvinism or hyper-determinism where literally God does everything. And that always bothers people because then he becomes the author of sin. And I've seen the smartest guys on the planet from William Lane Craig to the, all these fancy apologists, no matter when you get down to it, it always boils down to this. Well, if God is literally doing everything and we're just puppets like to the fullest extent, then he is the author of sin. Because mm -hmm. if you can't even get around it because God's taking you the puppet and getting this other puppet and smashing them together and then he's blaming the puppets mm -hmm. um and so that really bothers people for obvious reasons on the other hand when you have pure free will uh, in the sense of like in this case is god reacting um you get into these things like open theism like god doesn't know things and things are just happening uh, to, to the full extent and therefore humans are this is the extreme version humans are the the, the what's sovereign and god is just simply you know reacted to what we're doing and he didn't see something coming and he's taken off oh taken off guard now of course christians rejected both of these yeah because both of those are seem to be the, unbiblical unbiblical and just too extreme mm -hmm. and what you often have is people will charge the other of believing that mm -hmm. and believe the other one but that's not what's actually everyone's mm -hmm. arguing usually people are trying to argue now there's different forms of the term compatibilism but somehow you have a will that's independent of god's and god has his own will and god's and there's a relationship there that god's doing god's will is obviously sovereign and above yours yeah right and your will is, it will submit to him but it's not like you know god is predetermining everything or god is reacting to you completely so i guess what i'm saying is god's not completely reacting to you in the sense where he didn't see what saul was doing coming mm -hmm. he has foreknowledge right he's all-knowing so I no, I don't think he's reacting in that sense. But in what are you gonna think? What are you thinking? No, but in one sense he is reacting oh, to right. human choice. So in one sense he's reacting because he sees that it's coming beforehand. Mm -hmm. So that what I'm saying was he's not reacting like he's blindsided by it. Right. He's not like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Oh wow. What now am I what gonna do? I do? Yeah, now, what do yeah, you do now? Yeah, yeah, I guess I'll think about this because I got eternity to think about it and I can hit pause, the pause button and you know. Yeah, yeah I, that's not what's happening. No. So that's what I'm saying. Those are the extreme ends. Yeah. So he is reacting to it in some sense mm -hmm. because you know, this gets might get too philosophical, but the fact that the present moment exists in and of itself, and in that present moment that Saul did something, God's in that present moment and therefore witnessing the thing in that immediate sense. Mm -hmm. So that's a very, I don't want to get too into that. It's a very deep, that's too philosophical for what we're doing here today. But a long story short, some people hold to that view that the very present moment is the very most real moment. So in that moment, God is acknowledging, oh yeah, he's doing it now. He's, re he's reacting to it. Sure. But he's not side blindsided by it. Anyways, besides that, in the, the second case of 1 Samuel 23, uh, what, the reason why people try to argue that, you know, God's reacting is because David is like, hey, if I go to this city, am I going to get destroyed? Am I going to get captured? And God's like, yeah, you will mm -hmm. if you go there. So then David doesn't go there. Yeah. And so what's interesting is God knows even the things that you would do, even if you don't do them. 
Or he knows so, what would happen, even if it doesn't happen. Exactly. So that's yes. called middle knowledge or counterfactual knowledge. Sure. Which is just a technical fancy term for, yeah, he knows what would happen even if it doesn't happen. Yeah. He right? knows all, because he's all knowing, he knows all possible futures. He knows all possible futures. He knows what we're going to choose. So he knows what actually is going that's to happen. Right. But I mean, you, you either in this issue, for me, it really boils down to, is God being genuine? All over the scriptures, old and new, he offers his people choices. And so is he genuine when he offers those choices? I mean, you look at, you look at um, Deuteronomy 28 with, it, with his people with blessings and curses. And he's like, look, here's, what's, here's blessings I've set before you and curses set before you. If you obey the terms of this covenant, you will have my blessings. If you disobey the terms of the covenant, you will have my curses. Mm. This is what is going to happen. Uh, either or you choose. And then he gives Moses foreknowledge where he says to, he says to Moses, look, they're going to choose poorly. They're going to choose the curses <laughs> right. and here's what's going to happen. And he, we know that God does know what they're going to choose because even back in the days of Abraham, he says, you know, your ancestors are going to go to Egypt for 400 years right. and then I'm going to take them out and then I'm going to bring them into the promised land. So it's this, it, it seems like... I don't think we can escape it where there's this interesting mix of God truly, genuinely offers us free will choices, and yet he also is all-knowing, and he also has an ultimate plan of redemption right. of how this is going to go, uh, you know, broadly for humanity and then specifically in our lives as well. And I think that what's important there is that there's a tension there that is true. That will be alleviated yes. on, on the, salvation, the day of the Lord. The mm -hmm. salvation comes when you see God with your, with your own eyes. It will be alleviated then. But there's a tension there that persists right now. Okay? So there's something that we can't see. There's human limitations there. And I think that's important. I think that mystery needs to be retained and mm -hmm. sustained because I think it's dangerous to go too far one way and be yeah. like, absolutely. Because, you know, again, so you're saying God's the author of evil? And on the other hand, it's it's too loosey goosey to go the extremely the other way. Yeah. So it kind of like Goldilocks. It's not too hot, not too cold, but it's somewhere in the middle. It's just right. Yes. Right. And 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 that has to be based on what we see in scripture. I think right. when we when when we just go crazy with our own ideas, we start to ignore the the plain truth of the scripture right. that it sets out before us. And we have to be careful. We have to limit ourselves by that. There's a humility that 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 has to come where we go, look. I may not understand it, but this is what it looks like the scripture is saying, and therefore I'm going to stick with that. Right. Because otherwise, we end up in yeah. weird things and, like that. And, and and this is such a philosophical issue that the average person, like even the smartest people can't grapple these impractical. issues. It becomes impractical. It becomes, it's so impractical to make it a dogmatic position. Yes. That Agreed. when we know that God is this, and that's why I was saying compatibilism, there's some sort of uh, relationship and interactions between the two as we keep saying between God's will and our will. And obviously God's will is, is superior to ours. So he can interrupt it whenever he freely uh, wants to. But again, to make it like a dogmatic position that, oh, to, or to make it too extreme, I think it just goes away from what you're saying, the genuineness of God's character within mm -hmm. the text. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's just the way it needs to be. So is he reacting? I just said there's multiple ways you can interpret that. Um, I would say no, not in the blindsided sense, but he is genuinely responding yes. to humans. Yes. Yes. And you know that how that works is just a really deep philosophical, even ontological question that you can we don't talk know. about 
We well, don't yeah. know how it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's kind of the that's whole point. That's okay. And, 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 and what's really important there too is because some people will be like, well, how could God do this? If you take like atheism, if you look at the extreme, essentially is a promoter of determinism, biological determinism. Mm -hmm. They can't escape it. Like free will doesn't exist in a in an atheistic framework. They try to argue for it, but really always comes back to, well, you're biologically determined to do these things and you can't escape it. Yeah. So you the the desire to retain free will and more responsibility in some sense is a, is is a spiritual thing in and of itself. Um as of yeah, anyways, but that's just me. But okay. So in summary, mm -hmm. determinism is grounded in atheistic belief system. Like it kind of needs to exist because you can't escape the fact that there's no spirit that's hovering above biology or the physical world that can interact, right? with the physical world. It can't just come in and be sure. like, oh, and change how things worked. Yeah. Everything's physical. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just one thing cl colliding into another thing. So everything's a reaction of something else. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, this idea of free will, you know, even, even if it's related to the image of God, because God is truly has true freedom of will, um, even if it's related there, is a more spiritual concept. Mm -hmm. So however that works, it's again, it's up for God to figure out and for us to God to let us know how it works at the end of time. But I don't think you should be too dogmatic, but it's somewhere in between is a sweet spot. And granted, we are given the, the liberty as Christians to look into these things and to delve into it and to, you know, to debate about these things. And, it's, yes. and it is fun. It can be a fun thing to do. But once you make it like a basis for Christian life, like you've you've gone too far into something. Too far. Because you it, can't know. It's always really interesting to me to take, to I, I mean, right now, the last five years, I've really kind of taken a step back and looked at it where in so many of these issues that aren't foundational to, to salvation, they're not foundational to the Christian faith in the same way as, you know, the divinity of Christ is. Right, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, so these secondary and tertiary issues, they're important and they're interesting, but there's a level of mystery to it that we're, we're not right. going to figure out. It's interesting to see like, different personalities. We have to understand the fact, I think it goes a long way in humanizing people who think differently than you, Christians who think differently about these issues. We all have our own... Um, because of our personalities and because of our experiences, we all have our own insecurities and we all have right. the things that we like and we gravitate towards. And that can be, you know, really interesting and we can learn from one another on that. Right. Or we can just like brawl it, duke it out and just, ah, uh, and yeah. that's not all, that's not always recommended. I don't In recommend fact, that. I, I, it's bad. <laughs> it's that is bad. Let not us not yet. kill each other and go, you know, hand to hand combat over some of these issues that, yes inherently because we are not god we are not going to fully understand yes there's just some things beyond us and i think that that testifies to the fact that there's something more we're more than the sum of our parts agreed i think that testifies to that okay so i yes. got a question for you let's okay sure okay viewer question yeah from jpm so it deals with first samuel 28 uh, verses 7 to 20. did oh, the witch of endor yes. actually summon samuel from the dead does that mean spirits can be summoned today if so, does that mean mediums, psychics, Ouija boards, etc., are actually speaking with dead people? I was told they were being tricked by demons. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Okay, smart. so I Back see there. I see no evidence in the scripture right. that this was not a genuine appearance of Samuel's spirit. Right. I mean, the the medium is 
very freaked out. She shrieks when right. she sees Samuel. <laughs> and this this is, you know, from my perspective, one of two things is happening here with the shriek. One, this is not a normal occurrence for her to see a real spirit and Samuel really appears and she's freaked out and so she shrieks. Or she's shrieking because when she sees Samuel and recognizes him, it's revealed to her the identity of Saul. And she thinks she's caught in a trap because she even says the first thing she says, uh, she, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And Saul said to her, don't be afraid. Well, why would she be afraid that his identity is Saul? Well, we've been told in the earlier part of the chapter that he had banned mediums and witchcraft and divination in the land of Israel. It was a capital punishment. So right. she could be put to death. So when she realizes that this is Saul, she may be shrieking because she thinks that she has just been caught and now she is going to die. So there's two perspectives on that that I think are valid, uh, but one does not exclude the other. So right. could bo both could be going right on here. Uh, but the reason why I would say it appears like Samuel really appeared is because he gives Saul a word from God that is accurate, that right. is true. So if this was a demon, we would expect there to be lies. We would expect there to be more deception. We would expect the author of Samuel to let us know that there was evil in the spiritual world going on, not just the evil of Saul well, trying to contact Especially Samuel. because Saul was already tormented by his spirit, so why not dilute him more? Yes. But in this case, it was <clears throat> the opposite. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, no. Yeah. So I would say, did the Witch of Endor actually summon Samuel from the dead? I would say, yes. This was in the providence of God. Right. God was allowing Saul to heap more judgment upon himself, and he was meeting Saul where he was, really unfortunately. And I, I will say this, too. There's, I, whether you want to think Hannah's a prophet, but I will say, I don't know if this is, it seems like it might be related. In 1 Samuel 2, 6, when Hannah devotes. So Hannah was... Samuel's mother. Yes, yeah. sorry. Yes, of course. I should say that. I never mm -hmm. clarify myself. I never give context. I just, That's what I'm here I just, for. I just expect, yeah, you have to clarify. I edit you. I'm like, you know, you I, know, but <laughs> I'm your wife. It's I can't my expect job, them to know. Right? Yeah, I just, I just, <laughs> I explain you all That's the time. right. All right. So, 1 Samuel 2, verse 6, Hannah's prayer goes, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Mm -hmm. And Hannah's prayer, all right. So, you think about that. That's in Hannah's prayer for her son. It? So it, 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 there's something to like, Samuel ties in this. You see what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. the author of Samuel knows that, the, that this is the fact. So I think there's a relationship there, but I didn't want to interrupt you, but I did. <laughs> Story of my life, Valerie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, no, that's good. All that's right. good. Okay, so the, the, the second part of the question is, does that mean spirits can be summoned today? I don't know. That's in God's providence. God deals with post-death. That is that is his realm. I don't think that, that spirits can regularly be accessed. I do think it needs to be a special thing. And by spirits, I mean the actual human departed spirits. Yeah. Um, does this mean mediums, psychics, Ouija boards, etc. are actually speaking with dead people? I do not believe that they are, no. Um, I do think that this seems to have been a special situation. I do personally believe that Many times, uh, 
that it says I was told they were being tricked by demons. I, I do believe in a spiritual world. I'm a Christian. I, right. I, I accept the Bible's, what I understand to be the Bible's worldview, where there are demons, there are evil spirits that are anti-humanity and anti-God. And I believe that that is why God out, outlaws this, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New as well. Yeah. Um, you know, in Acts chapter 19, verse 19, we see that when, um, I believe it's in the city of Ephesus, when when uh, there's a huge group of people who come to Christ, they gather together all of their uh, books of incantation and, and spells and, and uh, things that they use for divination. Uh, they heap them in a pile and they have this huge bonfire. Uh, you know, they just burn them because they recognize that as evil. So this is, it's not just outlawed in the Old Testament. The occult is also outlawed in the New Testament. And this is twofold. One, because we as creatures of God, as create creations of God, we are meant to be in relationship with God. Without those intermediary things, we are supposed to go to God. So anything other than that is rebellion. It is evil. Uh, but also those things lead us into spiritual sin and idolatry because the evil spirits that are also in the spiritual world and occupy the same territory as us, demons, can communicate and can get footholds into our lives through things like divination, like Ouija boards, like going to mediums, like going to spiritists. Right. So a medium... You know, I've met mediums and a lot of them have the best of intentions, but it is still evil. You can be participating in evil and not know that you're participating yes. in evil or think that that evil is good. We know, according to Romans 1, that our sin can harden our hearts and that our, and we know from Jeremiah that our hearts are, are desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's like this, we can trick ourselves. So you have to be very, very careful when it comes to spiritual things. And we know for sure, this is outlawed in the Old Testament. It's outlawed in the New Testament. We need to stay away from it. Yes. And I want to add something else to this too, because mm -hmm. the question is, are they still, are they spirits? I would say no. And I would say no, because the, first of all, the woman is terrified. So this is unusual for her. She's like, what? Mm -hmm. It actually worked? Like, all right, okay. So, yes, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, right. Whether or not it actually worked, but she, normally she's talking to something else. Mm -hmm. um, but I would also say, that it specifically says in Hannah's prayer, it's the Lord who uh, brings down to Sheol yes. and raises up. Yes. So I don't think that you can have access to a human spirit. That's what I mean. Yes. It has, that has to be God's providence. It's totally God's His prerogative. His realm is the realm of human, like he yes. deals with human spirits after we die. We right. don't just roam around. And th there is something to be said now. The question is, okay, so those demons, we know there's demon possession in the New Testament and, and stuff like that. And um, it, we see about the evil spirits in the Old Testament as well. Yep. Um, and so, we know that we know uh, from Acts that uh, that demons can give uh, psychic gifts yes. to humans. Yes, and so you, I I, yes. I know for sure not all psychics are real, but some are. Right, some are. We see them in Acts where the the slave girl has a, is possessed by a demon, and so she can tell the future, and she's accurate. She's accurately telling the future. Yes, and the demon is cast out of her, and she loses that ability. That's right. Yeah. So and so here you have. The, the spiritual world is just a different thing in general. Uh, and, but you're dealing with spirits specifically that are of the spiritual world. So you're not dealing with humans who have died who have a spirit, but will be resurrected with their flesh. Like we're inherently a different 
kind of being mm -hmm. than the spiritual beings. And however, I don't want to get too much into demonic possession because that's not the point of this question here. Um, but I will say this, that in general, de demons are there. Like, like in Deuteronomy, this is part of the reason why God devoted so many nations to destruction because they're worshiping demons. That's that whole Deuteronomy 32 worldview that the late Heiser was speaking about. Um, God rest his soul. But um, that is, it's, it's just intimately tied into this, that the worship of demons mm -hmm. is intimately related to this. And they're, and as you hear about contemporary stories, they're not nice. They, 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 they're not, they will trick you. They want to kill you. Uh, they don't want, you know, they hate you is the idea. They want you to be degraded. That's yes, right. Even if they don't, even if they initially are very friendly and, and very beneficial to your life. Yes. Um, in promising you things and. You know, exactly. Yeah. So I just it will ultimately destroy you or or cause you to destroy yourself. Like like the whole Balaam Balak incident from right. Numbers twenty two to twenty four. God would not allow him to outright curse Israel. So what he did was get get people to get them involved in idolatry. So Israel ended up cursing themselves. So destruction either way. Right. Not good. Not good. Not good at all. Okay, so there's one more question sure. uh, that really ties into our big question for the day. Okay. Uh, and this is from Toby. He says, hi, guys. This will be my third time going through the Bible with you. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I plan to keep going as long as you guys do. Awesome. Uh, so we always say once saved, always saved, right? Saul was anointed by God. Do you think he went to heaven? Thanks and keep up the good work. Okay, so right off the cuff, here's what I will say, just quickly. I'm not going to say who's saved and who's not. That's not my call. Uh, that's God's call. Mm -hmm. uh, well, God will have compassion whom he chooses to have compassion. He'll have mercy whom, whom he chooses to have mercy. Mm -hmm. If he chooses to have mercy in Saul, God bless. You know what I mean? That, that's fantastic. That's God's prerogative. He knows what's right. So I'm not going to make a stance on if he went to heaven or not. Mm -hmm. um, but based on the text and what we know, we can make a probabilistic assessment that he, I think that he doesn't seem like it, but I want to say that he did or he didn't. Okay, so it doesn't seem like it. So here's what I'll say. First Chronicles 10, uh, verses 5 to 14 are, is the whole context. But I want to highlight specifically verses 13 to 14 there. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in, the, in that he did not keep the command of the Lord. And he also consulted a medium, seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turn the kingdom over to David, his son, Jesse. Okay, so this doesn't get into, obviously, whether he's saved or not. Uh, at the time, in the Old Testament, they went to Sheol, mm -hmm. as God said. I put down to Sheol, and I raise up. So that's God's prerogative again. Um, but here you have something that he breached faith. And to kind of get to the heart of this question of once saved, always saved, we have to look at, okay, first of all, I know it, it does sort of tie into we're getting to the big question now. Mm -hmm. Did you already mention the big question again? I think so. Does The big question for today is, does the Bible teach you can lose your salvation? That's right. So it's related to this one so statement. It's the contrast. So take this so, and extrapolate right. So it it's related to the... Uh, because in the New Testament sense, we have the Holy Spirit that's a sign of the covenant, and to lose the Holy Spirit is basically to not be saved. Um, that's the general idea that's put forward, or to not have the Holy Spirit is not to be saved. Um and this once saved, always saved idea uh, is in contrast to what you see happening in the Old Testament, which is with Saul has the spirit, but then it's removed, and then David has the spirit, right? Mm -hmm. And then it torments him. The difference here is that the Holy Spirit was not the covenantal sign of the Old, Te Old Testament. 
and that's important. So I don't want to make a step in being like, oh, because he lost the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. therefore, uh, he, he it's the same thing as the New Testament. It's not the same thing. This covenantal sign. Now, granted, it's extremely similar. So I don't want to undermine to say that that's not related whatsoever, because I think that, as Paul says, the Old Testament are examples and is a witness of what for our benefit. Mm -hmm. um, that's the point of scripture. It's for our benefit, of, of the Christian's benefit. So I don't want to say that that's not absolutely the case. So I, just to make that point clear about Saul's stance and heavenly stance, it is up in the air uh, in that sense, but it doesn't look good from a New Testament perspective. Like I would say from a New Testament perspective, avoid if, if, this if this took place in the New Testament, essentially, I would say it looks like he is not saved. Yeah, it doesn't look good. I mean, the the author the author of Samuel, when, when we see the... I did a segment on this on the regular Bible Discovery show on the death of Saul, but how the death account of Saul is written out is we see very clearly Saul being portrayed as the enemy of God, that he, as the king who you know, who was anointed to rid the land of the enemies of Israel, the right. enemy of God, he actually fulfills this by killing himself because he has become the enemy of God. So it doesn't look good. And, you know, he had a chance. He knew the day he was going to die because Samuel, Samuel's spirit said, you know, tomorrow you're going to be with me. You're going to be dead. You and your sons. And he had that opportunity to repent. Right. I mean, later on, we see an incident where Ahab, the most evil king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and that's saying something because all of the kings of northern Israel were evil in their own respect. Yes. But Ahab topped the, topped the scale. He tipped the scale. Um, there's an instance where God confronts him with a prophet, and Ahab repents, and God relents for that right. time. The evilest king <laughs> who was going to continue in his evil. Right. So it just shows God's willingness to work with people, even evil people. So yeah, I don't think we can. I don't think we can be sure, but it doesn't look good because we the, the Bible does not record repentance in that right. in, in that day, um, and also he's portrayed as fulfilling kind of his role as king by killing the enemy of Israel, except the enemy is himself. Yes. So it doesn't look good. But, no. But the the it to this though. Uh, the heart of this question. So we always say once saved, always saved, right? Yes. Okay. So that's really at, that is our big question. Does it, the Bible teach that you can lose your salvation here on this side of the cross? Right. Or does it teach that you, you're once saved, always saved, eternal security, perseverance of the saints if you're a Calvinist? Um, so I think I have like a slew of proof oh, texts. Okay. I, I actually, <laughs> I know, but I had to, just for Brandon, right? I was going to make him edit a whole bunch. The editor, no, yeah. Um, the, the, the dangers with that, though, is that it's not just about comparing one verse. It's about a harmonization of the text. And what we have here is that when we debate these things, I often feel like, and the same thing with the predestination free will issue, um, that we're looking at this too much like a system. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, God teaches that you have eternal security, and then God teaches that you can lose your salvation. And these people are butting heads about what God's doing. Yet God teaches us that he is a person, not a system, and he disciplines those he loves. In other words, you can pray to him. He will guide you and direct you. If you're actually with God, the person God, not 
not just the, the mechanisms by which he does things, but if you're with God, who is a person, he, will, he is your heavenly father. He will discipline you. So if you're doing wrongs, he will help you. So I think that's an important perspective and the reason why people get so caught up about this debate. Mm -hmm. Because personally, my personal stance is, is that, yeah, I think you are eternally secure, but so long as you live your whole life as a Christian. So I think that you, you, I think that you can reject eternal security from eternal security. I think that's possible. And that that's my position. And I could be wrong in that, but I think there's a lot of proof text that says other that says that that's the case. That's the reason why you could say you've been saved. You could say that you've been saved and you're being saved for the day of redemption, and yet also say that some have walked away from the faith. Um, so I think that's an important thing to have here is that God is a person and he's working with us. And then you have to reject the person of Christ, to reject God conscientiously to forfeit your salvation, not just accidentally lose it. So I think to, to, not to convolute this more, but I think that the difficulty people have is the rhetoric that's used against this concept of forfeiting your salvation. Is they, they call it losing your salvation, as if I've misplaced it or I forgot about it. And that is not the actual position that people take. That is like a polemic used against the idea of forfeiting your salvation. Um, so I don't think that it's a once saved, always saved. And I think there's a danger in pushing that too hard, like it's a system, because what do you read? You read about a whole bunch of people that can be sinning profusely, and then Paul talks about they fall away from the faith. And then you can read about a whole bunch of people who are, you know, and then they might think that they're saved. They might think that they're saved, mm -hmm. and then actually not be saved because they're self-deceived. Mm -hmm. And if you say, oh, if you just believed, then you're good to go. And then they go on this whole life in this deception mm -hmm. that they think that they're saved, but they're not. And I find that to be a very dangerous thing to kind of force on people's minds. Um, because it does teach you to persist and have perseverance. And that's the idea of perseverance of the saints, is that you will continue in that, in, in that relationship with God. He will discipline you. You'll repent. You will come forth to God. He will change you to continue to grow you and change you throughout the process. So this whole, that's what I'm saying, is in a big convoluted way, <laughs> is that salvation is progress. God is progressively working within your heart to change you, to restore you into the image of God. Right. It is progressive. It is a process that's done throughout your life. To say it's, it boils down to a single moment can lead you into being deceived. Right. And, and we see ahead. the Apostle Paul coaching us in, in a sense in this way when he uses language like run the race well. Yes. And, and, and encouraging us to persevere and, and push forward so that yes. we will receive the culmination of our faith, which right. is... Uh, which is our glorified selves in the new heavens yes. and the new earth, when we are finally in the presence of God without this wall of sinful flesh that we have now. Exactly. Right. So there's there's the the, the hope that is in us, the seal of the Holy Spirit um, that's talked about in Ephesians one and Ephesians four. This deposit where now we are like. Uh, as Christians, we are like the temple of God. We are indwelt with his spirit. This is a promise. This is a foretaste of what our salvation will be in the future. Right. So, yes, I think that I was just trying to yeah, kind no, of flesh good. out more that, this idea of a progression in our lives. Th that's exactly and a right. Sanctification so, because if you see that there's no, if there's no track record of repentance, and there's no evidence of perseverance. Mm -hmm. You have a right to question their salvation. You'd be like, mm -hmm. are they saved? Because yeah. their whole lives don't have any fruits whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And you read about people 
who believe and then don't bear any fruit. Yeah. And it's always in and a negative, evil sense. We are supposed to be very sober about this. Even the Apostle Paul, you know, he, he says, work out your faith with fear and trembling. Be very sober about this. Right. Like, work it out. Right. Um, and, and, and be real with yourself about sin and about Christ. And then, and I mean, is there a more terrifying passage than when Jesus says, you know, people will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, I, I cast out demons in your name. I prophesied in your name. I, I did miracles in your name. But I will say, get away from me. I never knew you. That's right. And so, it's that self-deception you want yes. to avoid. Yes. Now, there's, you know, when you talk to people, there's different personalities that yes. come at this question. And some people come at the, this question and they are very full of anxiety because of this idea that they could lose their salvation. They could somehow commit one too many sins and then and then it's just over for them because they've backslidden and, and Hebrews 6 now applies to me because I've I've crucified Christ over and it's gone. Look, we're we are called to work out to be very sober-minded when it comes to our self, salvation and our relationship with God. But too much doubt over our salvation reveals in us a lack of trust of God. Is Christ strong enough is god strong enough to do what he promised which was that if we make him the lord of our lives if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that he is lord that we will be saved he is not weak in accomplishing this task he can accomplish this task and if in and, and, and you know when we pray and we ask for the assurance of our faith and we ask for this trust in god and this and this belief that he is strong enough uh, strong enough to save us we can have that. And then on the flip side, you kind of mentioned this before, but on the flip side, there's those personalities who are like, well, once saved, always saved. So I can I can live in sin and still inherit eternal life. Well, that is not true. When you read the the lists of of lifestyles, the Apostle Paul is very clear. There is a, There are lifestyles of sin where if you just accept that you are a sinner and you use this concept of God's grace as a license to continue to sin, right. guess what? Doesn't apply to you. Yeah. The grace of God doesn't apply to you because you are not making Jesus Christ the Lord and of your life because you don't care. The, the key here, because people are also worried about falling into the unforgivable sin. Sure. But there's a there's an important thing to remember here. This is why I said a track record of repentance. Because those who don't want to be saved anymore, who have forfeited their salvation, don't want to repent. Mm -hmm. If you have a desire to repent, you're fine. Mm -hmm. Like that, the whole point of, uh, the basis of our faith, right? It comes down to, are you going to repent when God says, like mm -hmm. Jonah, I've said this so many times, Jonah and Nineveh, right? They repented and God one day will raise them up. Even right? Ahab's, I mean, I yeah, know, I know. situationally. But even Ahab. So, so here's what I'll, I'll read you. You mentioned Hebrews 6. I'm going to read it for you because it's specifically addressing that point. It is. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared or partaken in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God. And by the way, the word there means Christ. Usually when it refers to the word of God, it's not just the Bible. It's referring to Christ. So they've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them him up to con in con contempt. Okay, so again, it has to come down to repentance. So you can't make them repent. They won't want to repent. Mm -hmm. But again, what's really important here is that it talks about the restoration of repentance. So it says here, you cannot, 
Someone who's fallen away, you can't restore them to repentance. That word restore means to fix. In other words, you can't fix something that doesn't exist. It's not the appearance of repentance. They actually repented at one point, and then they've fallen away, mm -hmm. and they don't want to repent again. And mm -hmm. you can't restore, you can't fix that repentance because they've decided to crucify God. Now, that is a conscience, willing, they don't care about God. It's one of those things. Now, this still bothers people because... Well, what if I consciously did that? It's, it, and what if, I, what if I know someone who did that? Here's another thing to keep in mind too, is that Paul also talks about people who walk away, that come back completely sorrowful. Mm -hmm. and, Paul, and Paul says, look, God, ease them in gently because you don't want their sorrows to outweigh like, their, basically their being, mm -hmm. right? So he's like, take them in. They're going to be completely sorrowful about the decisions they made when they walked away. So let them come back in. Mm -hmm. There's a, a sacrament called the penitence of... of, of uh, basically penitence, which is essentially someone who leaves but then comes back. You're supposed to restore them. So that is possible um, because they want repentance back. So the point here to make is someone could walk away, someone you love or a family member, and they could walk away from the Lord for years, but they might be rejecting a false version of Christianity, maybe one that was misrepresented in their church. You see people doing bad things, they're like, well, I don't want this. So they're rejecting a false Christianity. Maybe they're rejecting something else in their lives that they're conflating with God. So my point here is that the human heart is so volatile, it's so, you can't be boiled down to a mechanism that you can mm -hmm. be like, oh, you didn't do this, on and off switch, you're out, you're right. It's yeah. not like that. Well, and that, that does God, when we think about it that way, you know, if we were to make those judgment calls, well, my family member has walked away, they've, they've rejected God, therefore they're never, never coming back, like that whole flip a switch mentality yes. that we're talking about, does God a tremendous disservice. We're taking his place and we're saying, well, obviously this is what he's doing. Right. We don't know that. What we know from the scripture is that God is tremendously merciful, especially when it comes to this idea of repentance. And therefore, best case of action, best course of action for us, if we are experiencing that where one of our friends or our loved ones or someone that we know walks away, pray for repentance, right. pray for restoration. What's the worst that's going to happen? It won't happen? Yeah. At, what what <laughs> right. do you lose? Yeah, that's right. What do you lose by continuing to pray and having hope? Because we know, we see time and time again that God is tremendously merciful in his dealings with evil Humanity. Right. And, Tremendously and, merciful. And to, I really want to cite a lot of these texts to kind of show this, but I know we're kind of running over time. We are. Um, I will highlight this. You can always go to my blog. I'll post in the description box below uh, for the article that I delve deep into this because I think, once again, the, 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 the problems that come with this, the anxieties that come with this position, or even the indifference that comes with this position, mm -hmm. is because we're looking at it like a system. We're not treating God like he's a person. And I'm saying that so... Bear in mind this, for uh, Matthew 24, 24, for, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Mm -hmm. Christ himself is willing to say, if possible. He's willing to say it's possible that this deception might compromise the God's people. Mm -hmm. If Christ is willing to say that, it's possible. I think we need to be willing to say that too. I think, I think that's a very basic point there that we don't want to overstep and be like oh yeah absolutely uh the, because the moment i said it because here's another thing to keep in mind too we say once saved always saved our concept of belief today has been neutered because it's been devoid of behavior when you say believe in the old testament it implies you will behave accordingly mm -hmm. oh i believe this therefore i'm gonna it's gonna affect my whole life i i, I want to believe this and you're gonna behave uh and do the actions according to what you believe otherwise you don't really believe and 
Um, today we have a belief is just like, oh, I believe that God existed. I believe that Jesus Christ became a man. It's like, okay, well, that has to radically affect your life. It has to. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't radically affect your life, what does Paul say? Test yourself. Are you mm -hmm. actually in the faith? Examine yourself because God forbid you're not in the faith. So it's not as easy as us saying, oh, oh, I believed at this one little point in time, right? Uh, you need to have a relationship with God because we know God's not going to charge you um, for not believing. What does he say? For all the people, oh, I perform great signs. Get away from me. I never knew you. That's not a knowledge about you. It's a knowledge of who you are intimately. I never knew you. It's a relationship because you can't, he knows who you are. He's all knowing. So he's not charging you, oh, I know about you. He's like, no, I never knew you. Mm -hmm. We don't know each other. I don't want you here. Mm -hmm. He's charging you with that relational knowledge at the end of the day. So it's so important not to look at this issue like it's a philosophical mechanism about how God created a mechanism and it's just natural. It's how it's put in place. God is a person. It's the reason why you don't have, you know, sometimes people get the Holy Spirit at baptism. Sometimes it happens before baptism. It's just God is a person. He's showing us who he is and you have to look at it that way. And once you start looking at it like a mechanisms, um, you, you run into the danger of, you know, starting a new denomination, everyone hating each other. So, so that's my, yikes. yeah, yikes, right? And that's my, that's my two cents on that. Really, yeah, <laughs> okay. maybe 10 cents. Okay, I'm going to wrap it up for us. If you have comments or questions, please pop them down in the comment section below. Matlock and I always read it. We try to respond uh, as well. And if you have questions for upcoming episodes, please also pop those down in the comments below or email us. Uh, and until next time, we'll see you then. Happy reading. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.